Well, good morning. We're going to be still working our way through the book of Amos. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Amos chapter 7. Lord willing, we will get really close here to the end by the end of the day. And next week, by God's grace, we will finish the book. This morning, we're going to talk about preaching. What is preaching? Webster defines preaching as to urge acceptance or abandonment of an idea or course of action specifically. Warren Wiersbe in his book on preaching defined it as the communicating of God's truth by God's servant to meet the needs of God's people. Michael Febreze said of preaching, it seeks to do is to change lives. He says, unless our preaching has changed the lives of the people in the pews, then everyone involved has been deceived. Real biblical preaching brings about changes that conform a person to the image of Christ. John Stott, in his monumental work, Between Two Worlds, The Art of Preaching in the 20th Century, sums it up well in the first paragraph. He says, preaching is indispensable to Christianity. Without preaching, a necessary part of its authenticity has been lost. For Christianity is, in its very essence, a religion of the Word of God. No attempt to understand Christianity can succeed, which overlooks or denies the truth that the living God is taking the initiative to reveal himself savingly to fallen humanity, or that his self-revelation has been given by the most straightforward means of communication known to us, namely by a word and words, or that he calls upon those who have heard his word to speak it to others. I'm not done. The second Havelk Confession from the Swiss Reformers defined preaching this way. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Wherefore, when this Word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very Word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful, and that neither any other Word of God is to be invented nor is to be expected from heaven, and that now the Word itself which is preached is to be regarded, not the minister that preaches, for even if he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless the Word of God remains still true and good. What we have seen in six chapters in the book of Amos is preaching. God called Amos, who is not a prophet, nor a prophet's son. He was a herdsman, keeper of sycamore figs, as we'll learn. And God calls him to leave his land of Judah and to go to the land of Israel and to preach against God's people. He wasn't called to preach his own words, but the very word of God. And his audience was God's people. And God's people had strayed far from him. And Amos's message was not one of a whole lot of hope, but that of justice that would come because they refused to listen to the preaching of God's word. So this morning we pick up where we left off last week in Amos chapter 7. And here's the main idea, here's the main thrust. Justice will come for all who refuse to listen to the preached word of God. Justice will come to, for all who refuse to listen to the preached word of God. There's three points to this sermon, the intercession while preaching, the hatred for preaching, and the end of preaching. 
I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask if you pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll get started. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we could gather together. We ask that you would open up the minds and hearts of your people this morning. May they hear your word. May they hear from you this morning as I preach. And I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. So first is the intercession while preaching. Amos 7 begins with some visions that that Amos has been given by God for God's people. In fact, the the last three chapters, 7, 8, and 9, have five visions. The first two are about a catastrophic event that God will bring upon Israel. The second two are a wordplay vision that employs symbolism to convey its message. And the fifth vision is distinct in its form and content, showing the Lord executing his judgment upon Israel. But the first two visions that we see here in Amos receives, he doesn't just receive these visions and preach them, no, he, he intercedes for Israel. So here's what it says. If you haven't turned, turn now, Amos 7, look at verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O oh Lord God, please forgive How can Jacob stand? He's so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. He begins with two judgments that are horrific. And for, for six steady chapters in this book, we have received bad news after bad news for God's people. God's judgment is, is coming. And now we read here, it, it's been abated for a time. It, it's going to pause. It's going to be, he, he relents because of the intercession of the preacher. This is good news. God still listens to the prayers of his saints. Amos receives two visions here and goes back to the Lord on behalf of the people of Israel. The first vision is clear. The timing of this calamity is to come after the king has gotten the first share of the harvest, but before the people have the opportunity to get their share of it. But, but Amos recognizes this and, and how hard and tragic this would be for the people. And he steps in and he pleads their case to the Lord. Oh, Lord, please forgive. How can Jacob, Israel, how can Israel stand? He's so small. And what we learn here in these verses is the God of Amos is still a merciful God. He is gracious and slow to anger, and executes wrath in a way that does not completely wipe out his own people, even when they fully deserve it. And so why did God give Amos these visions if he wasn't going to follow through? Well, because even in the midst of their rebellion and sin, he was merciful enough to show them what sin deserves. See, God is instructing them Like many prophets who came before him, Amos interceded for the people, hoping God would relent of his plans for Israel. And and believe it or not, Amos cared about the people to whom God had called him to go and preach to. He cared about them. And so he calls on the Lord to intercede. 
Amos' request for the Lord's pardon was based on the fact that Israel couldn't survive because she was so small. And Amos saw that. He, he saw the people. He knew the people. He heard them. He witnessed their, their flailing about and that they would be swallowed up if he didn't step up and intercede and go to God. And what we learn from Amos is he's a good preacher. He's a faithful preacher. And as pastors, we need to intercede for our congregation. All pastors and elders need to intercede on behalf of those they, they preach and teach to. Since the fall in Genesis 3, which corrupted God's creation with the introduction of sin into the world, there has been a relational separation between God and man. But it wasn't all lost because God had a plan to reconcile his creation from this separation. And one of these ways is that God appoints leaders who love and care for the people and for these leaders, these preachers, to intercede on behalf of the people. This is the pattern that we see in the Bible. From Abraham, who interceded for the wicked city of Sodom. If just a few righteous people are found, he pleads. And even though the city was wicked beyond belief, and it was still destroyed, God still answered. God still relented. And we see Moses interceding for his people. Right after God delivered the people, what do they go and do? They make a a calf and they worship it. And they're committing idolatry. They deserve to be wiped out, but, but Moses intercedes for them. And God relents. Moses passionately cries out to the Lord, pleading with him to show mercy. And God listens to the prayers of preachers. So pastor, elders, if you're listening here, it's our privilege to pray for the people that God has entrusted to us. It's a high calling for us. In fact, I would be so bold to say it is a sin not to pray and intercede for our people. Samuel says in 1 Samuel 12, 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Samuel recognized that a failure to pray for God's people was a sin against God. And Samuel was a leader among God's people. How could he claim to care for them when he didn't bring their needs before the Lord, the one alone who could care for those needs? And how could Samuel claim to lead God's people if he didn't lead them to seek the Lord in prayer? Prayer is the responsibility of the preacher. But not just responsibility for the preacher, pastors, and elders. The church should be involved in interceding for one another. That's why we encourage you, church, to pray for one another. When someone doesn't care about what happens to others, that person will usually not take the time to intercede for others. If we're only focused on our own lives and our own desires, then we will spend little time praying for the needs of others. Friends, we demonstrate Christ-likeness when we intercede for one another. What difference would it make, do you think, in our church membership if our people had the character of Amos to serve one another by praying for them, by interceding for them? So this passage should remind us of the power of prayer. But how do we understand the statement? Maybe you're tripped up with this, that the Lord relented concerning this. What does this mean? Some translations, maybe yours says this, that the Lord repented. 
Well, well, first, we need to recognize this word in its original language is almost always used only of the Lord. Therefore, we need to be guarded against thinking the Lord may experience some moral change as might happen with us as humans. Second, we need to recognize the Lord uses human language to convey spiritual truths. The biblical writers often portray God as anthropomorphic terms because the only way human beings can conceive of God is in human terminology. In other words, the only way humans can describe things pertaining to God is in human words. And so the word doesn't mean so much of a change of mind, but a change of course. God's relenting, though, when it comes to Israel's sin, is no change of mind at all. He will deal with sin. See, the Lord here did not pardon Israel based upon um, Amos' prayer. He he didn't remove the, the punishment completely. No, he just held back his judgment, giving them more time and more opportunities to repent. We don't know, as we go through Amos, this book here, how much time is given between these chapters. But it seems as though it's, it's reasonable. There is time in, in between this, that the people heard the preaching of Amos. They had opportunities to listen, to take to heart God's word. I mean, after all, God is a patient God, and his willingness to hold back his judgment reveals the, the twofold nature of God and that he is just and therefore must punish sin, but he's also merciful and gracious and patient, ready to forgive the repentant sinner. But Amos isn't done. We read through verse 6, but when we come to verse 7, I believe time has passed from these, two, these first two visions, and the Lord gave his people an opportunity to repent, but the Lord will not withhold judgment any longer. Look at verse 7. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So what is Amos talking about here? A plumb line was made from a plummet, which is a stone or a metal weight attached to a cord. Builders use this to measure a wall. They use this to see if the wall is vertically straight. In this instance, the Lord is the builder, and he's measuring Israel to see if she's vertically straight with him. He has shown mercy to them in the first two visions by Amos and interceding, but he will hold them accountable. to to the standards of his justice and his righteousness according to his covenant promises that he made with them as we read in Deuteronomy 28. And what we learn is they were not straight with him. They had ceased to be the light to the nations that God called them to be and as a result, they were forfeiting the blessings. So just like a wall is out of line, Israel must be brought back into alignment. And the Lord, the builder of Israel, he has the right to bring her down. Intercession happened, but there was no change of the people, and judgment is coming. Second, we see the hatred for preaching. 
So I'm curious if kids are still with me, if they can finish this sentence. We don't talk about what? Bruno. All the parents are befuddled, right? We don't talk about Bruno. It's a song from Disney's movie that just came out in Canto. The song consists of gossip and anecdotes about the main character, Mirabelle's ostracized uncle, Bruno. It's a great song, by the way. It's a good movie. Bruno has been gifted this gift of prophecy. And all the prophecies have been associated with misfortune for the family. And, and, and because of that, it's left him estranged from the family. And so the song talks about, we don't talk about Bruno, and goes through the line of all that he prophesied and how the family members and the townspeople explain of how, how, how horrible life has been because Bruno preached truth to them. They don't like it. In fact, they hate him and they hate his message. Prophecy, as seen in the Old Testament, is declaring God's truth in his word. And sometimes people don't like the truth. Especially if it requires that they change something in their own lives. I don't know about you, but I've learned the last two years, people do not want to be told what to do. Right? Are you able to admit that for yourself? People don't want to be told what to do. Well, the same attitude was present in the days of Amos. They didn't want to hear the message of Amos. In fact, we would just change the song. We, We don't talk about Amos. We don't talk about him. His prophecies are hurting us. They don't encourage us. They don't strengthen us. They don't build us up in what we want and what we want to do. We don't talk about Amos. He was hated. In essence, they have hated preaching. We see it clearly with the priest here. Look at verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the temple of the kingdom. It is not a a light thing for a very religious person to accept that their religion itself is offensive to God. They don't take kindly to hear that what they are doing, who they are worshiping, how they are worshiping is an error. And, and here, Amos has to now deal with the anger of Israel's priest in Bethel, Amaziah. He doesn't like the message, and he doesn't really care for Amos that much. And, and in these words, we really see three tests that he gives him. The, the first test is, is, what does Amos do when he's misrepresented? That's verses 10 and 11. Amaziah presents Amos' preaching in such a way that a small collection of facts, many of them slightly true, give a completely false impression of the man and his message and his motives. See, friends, the most alluring lies are often mixed with some aspect of truth. 
And it seems that Amaziah crafted his words in order to cast Amos in the worst possible light with any, without any concern for the danger that Israel was in or their spiritual condition. But there, there was some truth in his accusation against his preaching. His preaching was affecting people. If Amos' ministry had no effect, then Amaziah would have seen no need to address him or this issue. And now his complaint about how Amos was affecting the land could mean a, a, a couple things. It could mean his incessant preaching about how evil they were was, was bothering him, which then bothered his, his actions. Or it could mean that his preaching was spilling over into the, the neighboring na- nations, getting their attention. Or it could mean that Amos was frightening and discouraging people, all of which are possibly true. The text is, is silent as to how Amos's preaching was affecting the land, but it was doing something to gain the attention of the spiritual leader in Bethel, so much so for him to speak out against him. It's been said that if you throw a rock into a chicken pen, the one that squawks is the one you hit. It's true every time. Amaziah had gotten hit by a rock from Amos, and he was squawking now. He couldn't bear it anymore. All Amaziah had accomplished in this was to authenticate everything Amos had preached about Israel's king and the religious establishment. The plumb line in Amos's vision was accurate. They were not straight with God, coming down from the priest all the way down to the people. The second test, though, that Amos receives is a temptation for Amos to seek safety and satisfaction. This test was aimed at his, his motives for serving God. He's, he's tempted first to act out of self-interest. The, the Hebrew words go and flee there in verse 12 includes an emphasis that he should do this for his own sake. Kind of like, you should go and flee if you know what I mean. Implying that if he doesn't get out of Dodge, very unpleasant things will happen to him. But he's also tempted to flee for his own satisfaction and own fulfillment for his life. If he flees back home to Judah, perhaps people, they'll, they'll, they'll appreciate him more there. Be better reception to his preached word. Perhaps they will listen and encourage and, and just praise him. And his influence will grow. His third and final test came as a confrontation with the authority to preach. Amaziah addressing, addressing himself and his ecclesiastical pride, all that he could muster and power and position, says this in verse 13, never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary. It's a temple of the kingdom. He's literally saying, we can't have this kind of preaching here in this temple. It's the king's sanctuary. It's his temple. And Amaziah's concern for the king and his sanctuary was directly connected to Amaziah's concern for himself. You need to leave Amos. But God has an answer to this priest. Look at verse 14. And Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. 
the essence of Amos's response to this priest is summed up in these words, not I, the Lord. He rests his whole case on the single fact of obedience to the revelation of the word of God on his life and that he was to go preach. He denies that his authority isn't in any way self-generated. He was neither by nature or self-appointment a prophet, neither did he have ambitions to be a preacher of God's word. He was simply following his flock. He was the vine dresser of sycamore figs. He was a herdsman. He was, he was fine doing what he was doing. He wasn't looking for fame. He wasn't looking for an audience. He wasn't looking for power or authority. He was simply trying to be faithful in the tasks that God had for him. God was the one that called him to go and preach. And now he has a severe judgment for him. Verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. This is severe. All that he held dear and close, his wife and his kids, will be taken from him. The land unclean, meaning he has no job. God would not tolerate hatred for the preaching of God's word. It wouldn't just fall on him. It wouldn't just fall on the priest. The judgment would fall on his family as well. Sometimes we pay for the sins of others. In the end, Amos was a prophet who had a low fear of man and a high fear of God. He knew where he stood with the Lord, and when the moments of testing came, Amos passed with flying colors. He preached the word, even though he was hated, even though he was despised. Amaziah said, never again prophesy at Bethel, and Amos' response was, now therefore hear the word of the Lord. He was not going to be bullied into stopping preaching the word of God. Amos was faithful. We need more preachers to be faithful like Amos. For those of us who preach the word, we need to be reminded that we have no authority in ourselves. It all comes from the Lord. So our words must come from God's word. Every authority rises and falls under the ultimate authority of God. Amaziah rejected the word of the Lord And what we read is the Lord rejected Amaziah. God would bring a swift and heavy judgment on him. See, he had the opportunity. Amaziah heard the word of the Lord, but he didn't listen to it. He didn't accept it. He didn't obey it. In Israel's history, this prophecy would come true and more priests would die and be sent away. Instead of hearing the, the, the cries of God's prophets, the people would several decades later hear the battle cry of the Syrian invaders. You know, I was thinking this week, just as judgment was dismissed by Amaziah the priest, we read in the Gospels that a later priest 
would reject Jesus and reject his preaching and charge him with crimes and nail him to a cross. Jesus' message should have been recognized by the priest, but God was signaling that the time of justice had come. Ironically, though, Jesus is more than a mere equivalent to Amos as God's prophet. Rather, he stands as the representative of God's people. And so his death on the cross completes the priestly act of making sacrifice for sin, lest any of us would be sent to an eternal spiritual wasteland of of exile. Jesus is the better prophet. He is a faithful prophet. To my non-Christian friends that are here this morning, it is difficult to express to you what a great gift we have in hearing God's word. God in his mysterious providence has brought you here this morning to sit under the preaching of God's word. So don't turn your ears off. Don't reject it. Don't downplay it. Don't ignore it like Amaziah did. Embrace the word. Listen to it. Let God's word direct you to himself. Understand his word. Love his word. Read God's word as revealed truth for you. And if you have questions about God's word because you want to understand it better, friend, there are dozens of people seated right here who would love to meet with you to talk about God's word. That's why we're here. It's one of the reasons. So come find me. I'd love to connect you to someone else so you can read and understand God's word. Well, we've seen the preacher making intercession while preaching and the hatred towards preaching. The last is the end of preaching. Chapter 8 is a sobering chapter. It's the end of preaching for God's people. Look at verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. What is Amos speaking of now when, when he talks about this basket of fruit? Well, the significance of this vision was, was for Amos to see that Israel was now ripe for judgment. They were ready for this judgment that God would bring. The summer fruit was the last to come in Israel's agricultural calendar. It, it came at the end of a season. Therefore, just as Israel's agricultural cycle had, had, had an end, so the nation would come to an end. And he says in verse 2 there, I will never again pass by them. That The literal translation is that as I will not again cross over to them. It appears to mean I will no longer pass over their transgression. The option for divine mercy will no longer be extended to Israel. When the Lord passed by Moses in Exodus 33, it was a sign of God's kindness toward Israel. But now the Lord will never again pass by them. The Lord will essentially overlook his people for their rejection of him. Then he says in verse 3, the songs of the temple should become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. These are horrifying words. The temple, once full of singing and worship, now full of wailing 
death, pain, grief will dominate. That's what your, your ears will be filled with. But silence, he says, silence is the worst. I think when a loved one dies, it's the silence that's the most traumatic. Or parents that have experienced kids growing up and moving out of the house, it's silence is deafening to the home. Amos is talking about the temple. It's where worship would have happened with God's people. And so silence means that there's no more preaching. No more worship. You know, I've been to a lot of churches in Europe in the last 15 years. Do you want to know what each of these old, beautifully ornate, historic churches have in common? They're all silent. I mean, it's eerie. There's no preaching there any longer. They are museums. You go to it and and you pay a nominal fee to get in and, and view this beautiful structure. I've been to the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Just gorgeous town, gorgeous church. I've walked in and I've seen the pulpit where Martin Luther preached. I paid two euros to go in there and take pictures, and it is silent. It's open on Sundays. I mean, you got to make money every day. There's nothing happening there. I've been to St. Pierre Cathedral in Geneva, Switzerland, where John Calvin preached. It was three euros to enter that one. Got some pictures from the tower. It's silent. See, silence for Israel in Amos' day was judgment against them. I know for some of you with little kids, silence is a vacation. That won't always be true. Silence in the church is judgment. It's a sign of death. Why are they being judged? Look at verse 4. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over and that we may sell again and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the epath small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell chaff of the wheat. In case they had forgotten their sins, Amos reminds them. They hated people. They loved themselves. You know what's shocking here? Is that Israel had become Egypt. Remember back to Exodus, all the pain and suffering that God's people were were inflicted on them when they were serving in Egypt? Well, now they became the oppressors. And how does the Lord respond? He pushes their nose back into history to catch the images, to thrust their minds back to the Exodus. Look at verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile 
and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs and lamentation. I will bring sackcloth and every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Just like God would deal with the hard hearted Pharaoh in Exodus, he will deal with hard-hearted Israel. And they will experience what Egypt would when they ignored the Lord. It's shocking to see this come back full circle. But it gets worse. Look at verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. These are the most fearful words of judgment in the, in the book. Is anything worse than a famine? The most deadly known famine in known history is the great Chinese famine of 59, 1959 and 61, which killed almost 43 million souls. Famines are never good. Dis- disastrous results. There is nothing worse than a famine for humans. In a famine, human life wastes away to nothing. Stomachs balloon and swell out. Arms shrivel up and faces are changed with with cheekbones protruding and rib cages are seen. And famine victims are like dead man walking. The simple truth is where there is no food, there is no human life. Food is absolutely essential for human existence But what happens when a spiritual famine descends on a land? Far worse is the starvation of the soul than the starvation of the body. A physical famine has temporary consequences, but a spiritual famine has eternal consequences. And God would bring a famine to the land, not of bread or water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. He would bring an end to preaching. Why? Why would God do this? Because the people didn't have an appetite for the word anymore. They ignored the word. They grew indifferent to the word. The word would be preached and they wouldn't show up or they wouldn't care. It's kind of like when you enter a plane. You know, the first time you get on an airplane kind of got this nervous energy, right? You get buckled up and then the, stu- the flight attendant comes on and starts explaining what to do in an emergency, right? And the first time you're flying, you're just on every word. I need to know what happens if something bad comes. But the 10th time you fly, you got the earbuds on, you're checked out. I'm not paying attention.
Some come to church like they enter an airplane. They hear preaching, but not really. They're concerned about the next thing. I've got to pick up my kids from the youth retreat. Jeff needs to finish real quick. Man, did I turn the crock pot on? What are we going to eat for lunch? Oh, I turned that report in. I don't think I got page five done. So you're hearing the sermon, but not really. Do you realize this could be the last sermon you ever hear? What will you do with the word of God when it's preached? Are you listening to God's word or have you checked out? See, the people of Amos' day weren't listening. They didn't pay attention any longer. You know, we've gone through it. They, they came, they would sing, they would give, they would do, but they ignored God and God's word. And the consequences, he says, are severe. Verse 12, they shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. The word wander literally means to reel. The word is used of of the reeling of, of drunkards, of the swaying to and fro of the trees and the wind, of the searching people who are bewildered. And the idea is that the people are wandering about, not knowing what to do, trying to find their way. They're lost and confused and they're suffering. And they'll go anywhere to now hear the word of God preached and nowhere will it be found. And it's not just for older, mature people who know it. No, when Amos says, in that day, lovely virgins and young men shall faint for thirst. These virgins and young men refers to those who have, would have the best able and ability to endure a famine. They're younger, they're, maybe their memory's more intact of what they remember. But the famine takes a toll on them. And they are falling under the severity of the famine. See, no one will be able to endure it. And their punishment will be full and final. He says, they shall fall and never rise again. Friends, this comes because people rejected the preached word. They stopped listening to preaching. A few weeks back, I was at a conference and Mark Dever shared a story of his time once teaching a seminar on Puritanism in London. And at one point he asked whether any of the the participants in London had ever observed the iron ring besides the pulpits in their churches. These iron rings that were set, built into the pulpit. And and a few of them nodded and and he asked, did anyone know what it is? And, And no one really knew. And he told them that such rings would have been gifts from the congregation to the preachers in the late 16th and early 17th century. And those rings held hourglasses. 
preachers would have one or two turns of the hourglass allotted to them to preach. As he said this, a woman audibly gasped and said, what time did that leave for worship? Mark said, at that moment, I could feel the whole Reformation crashing down around me. I let a couple moments of silence pass in order to compose myself. And then I said to her, you need to understand that when these gifts were given, some of the people in the churches would have been old enough to remember the smell of burning flesh of people who had gave their lives to translate God's word into the common language. These churches were hungry for God's word. They realized that their greatest blessing in life was hearing, embracing, and living out God's word. Are we hungry for God's word like that? You know, preaching has fallen on hard times. I've been told over the years, you know, Jeff, there's a few churches around here that they don't go longer than 30 minutes. Friends, if you're new here, we regularly go an hour. It's not a badge of honor. Don't take it that way. We just take it as the supremacy of what we're to do here is to sit under the preached word. We need it. We can't grow weary of it. We need to understand the blessing that we have in hearing God's word. Because losing it would be the worst judgment imaginable. If you don't believe me, we'll go on a tour in Europe. And you can see what happens when churches go silent. We need to treasure every opportunity we have to hear God's word. We need to make every effort to sit under the preaching of God's word. Friends, you need to schedule your week around Sunday. You need to prepare yourself on Saturday night. Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. You need to read the text before it's preached. It will serve you well, friends. You need to pray that your heart will be changed. You need to pray for the hearts of others as they gather the worship. You need to pray for the preacher. I need your prayers. And we need to come and be ready and hungry for God's word, no matter who the preacher is. I pray that we as a church will not have the same fate here that we read in Amos chapter 8. May we be a church that loves God and loves the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, you have been so good to this church. the legacy of preaching that precedes me. Your faithfulness to this body has been evident. Hang out, we recognize 
that it's a blessing from your hand. The freedom that we have in this country to gather for worship without any fear of anyone shutting it down, God, it is because of you. Help us not to take that for granted. And I pray that that would continue in our country, but even if it doesn't, God, I pray that you would instill courage in leaders of this church that we will continue to declare your word week after week. May we love your word. May we listen to it. May we teach it to others. And may we be Bible people in all of our lives. And so we thank you for your faithfulness to us. And may we seek to be faithful to you as we leave this place. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.